then finally, after years of working on developing the project, we arrive on the, on the field site and there's the first herd of narwhals that pass by and they're doing this ridiculous farting noise when they breathe. Not like the normal whale, like, like they're really doing like this crazy fart noise. So there's just like hundreds of farting whale passing by. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Field Reports podcast where we talk about field work and the science behind it. Today we have Dr. Marie Ojer Mathay, a marine ecologist at the University of British Columbia. Thanks for joining us, Marie. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, let's talk about your profile picture on your website. You have, you have this picture of a, um, a polar bear cub sitting in your lap. How hard was it? How hard was it to catch the polar bear cub? Or? And, also, and also to get a picture of it. <laughs> oh, okay, so well, the picture of it is not too hard. But um, so for my PhD, I worked on polar bears and we've uh, put collars uh, with GPS device on them so we could track the polar bears. So we had to catch the polar bears and this involves doing long hours in helicopter over the, the, the sea ice. Um, so what we do is we find footprints in the snow and then we follow the, foot, the footprints until we find the polar bears and that's can be really uh, challenging if you have any kind of motion sickness because the helicopter goes up and down and does like kind of twirls and things like that anyway so when you find the bear you dart it from the helicopter um to tranquilize it and then it will um go and will uh, like slowly sit down and, and lay down and then you 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 run next to the bear and then if they have cubs you don't tranquilize the cubs you you, from the helicopter you just land and then you have to jump out of the helicopter and try to grab the cubs and some of them are like shy so they'll just kind of stay with their mom and kind of cuddle up but some of them will run away so then you have to run in the snow and grab them and they're still fairly big and you kind of have to grab them by the like scruff of their neck and then like bring them back to their mom so I mean they can't, I don't remember that bear if it was a, a, a nice bear or if it was a wild bear I don't know but uh, but it can be hard if they're like runners um but then once you have them, they, they, you tie them up to their, their mom while you're doing the experiments. And I mean, they, they're, they're usually pretty fun to watch. And yeah, they're very cute, I guess. I'm sure that they're, they're probably like puppies running around. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Could you explain um, our audience about the kind of work that you do um, for your research? So... My current work focuses on developing uh, tools to understand the behavior and the distribution of animal using movement data. So my work is actually at the interface of ecology and statistical models that allow us to extract the most valuable and reliable information from observation data. And in ecology, there's been a boom in the amount of uh, tracking data that's collected. You got, you know, GPS data, you have, have accelerometer data, you have dive data, there's just a lot of it. And there's kind of a, a gap, I would say, between the amount of data that's out there and um, and the type of techniques, the statistical techniques that allows you to analyze it. So my work involves providing tools to analyze the data. And I, I'm currently really interested in, in kind of moving beyond just describing the movement but instead linking the movement to um, population dynamic data and fitness proxy. So, yeah, that's what I do. So, so does it also involve some field work? Yeah, so, I mean, 
I'm kind of in a transition period. I just started a new uh, job two weeks ago. So uh, uh, I've kind of wrapped up my old field work and planning new field work. But yes, so um, the some of the projects that I'm developing uh, for the work now um, is on gentoo penguins and uh, in the Falklands. And the goal is to link variation in, um, in uh, individual variation in, uh, in migration to uh, fitness proxy. So... Uh, I mean, the idea is kind of relate what habitat the animals are using with whether they're reproducing more or surviving longer. Um, and the idea is kind of you can link them back, um, the habitat that they're using, to kind of a quality index. So if it's individuals that reproduce a lot that use, you know, a certain type of habitat, you might be able to infer that that habitat is, is a good one to protect, for example. Okay, so, so if... Where have you conducted all this fieldwork research? So, I mean, so I was trained as a, as a field ecologist, so I did a lot of different type of field work. Um, I generally work on marine animals, marine mammals in particular, and I've worked a lot in the Arctic. Um, so, I mean, for the polar bears, I worked in uh, Takta Yaktak, so it's in uh, western uh, Arctic in Canada. It's a small, it's a small village, uh, an Inuit village, uh, and then I've worked a lot on narwhals, also in the Canadian Arctic, um, uh, on Baffin Island. And for that, we, we were tenting in like pretty much our rock, a tiny like tiny peninsula with like just rocks, <laughs> where we would tent there for months, observing the narwhals. That was pretty um, intense field work, and I've also worked. On um, on whales, where I spent multiple months on sailboats in the middle of the ocean, so like the Sargasso Sea, for example. So, so you must have had a lot of um, stories to tell about your fieldwork, like uh, fieldwork failures or um, any such challenges or encounters. Could you share some of some of them with us? Um, sure. I mean, fieldwork is always challenging, but I mean, I guess. I don't know if it's a challenge or, or a failure, but one of one story I can tell you is that so for my masters I, I developed a project on narwhals and it took a long time to develop to the funding. It was something that me and a, a PhD student were developing on our own. So the it took a long time to find funding, etc. And and I was, you know, very young and maybe naive and I was picturing the narwhal as this like mystical and magical creature kind of kind of yes, situation. And then yeah, the unicorn of the sea, you know, they would be really graceful in my mind and that kind of stuff. So um, so then finally, after years of working on developing a project, we arrive on the, on the field site and there's the first herd of narwhals that pass by and they're doing this ridiculous farting noise when they breathe. Not like the normal whale, like, like they're really doing like this crazy fart noise. So there's just like hundreds of farting whale passing by and I'm just like, you know, it just kind of made me realize how narwhals were maybe not mystical creatures, but just like <laughs> funny wild animals, I guess. Yeah. So, yeah. So is that is that like communication or there's a spot? <laughs> well, it's just breathing. I mean, it's just that their blowhole has. I don't know why. It's I nobody studied the reason why they make farting noise when they breathe, but I don't think it's communication. I just think it's the shape of their blowhole makes it noisier. Uh -huh. I mean, I guess the next way to say it would be trumpeting, but I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. So, what exactly were you studying about 
novels. So we were, uh, well, we were looking at the population dynamics, but my research was to develop a way to identify the individual uh, wells using photo identification. Mm -hmm. so, so this is a capture capture method? And yeah, so, so I mean, the goal was to use identify wells into capture recapture methods, but my, I mean, this was a master's project, so I mean, it was short, but then my goal was really just to develop a way so you could identify individuals and be able to recognize them. Mm -hmm. Okay, so so in your field, well, what kind of technology do you use to study on the So recently, it's mainly tracking device, so either GPS collars or Argos uh, tags that um, gives us the location of the animal through time or um, or time depth recorder that gives us the, the diving profile of, of the animal. So that would be the main technology that I use. Mm -hmm. and, and so when you get back, you give a lot of data to analyze using statistical methods. Yeah, so I mean, usually, I mean, it depends a little bit on the exact tracking device that I'm using, but usually you get some of the data um, uh, through satellite. So you, you kind of put the tags and then you go back uh, home and you get every day the location of your animals and then for some of them you have to go back and catch the animal again so for the ping the penguins for the the diving data you kind of have to go back a few months later and recapture the the penguin and take the the tag off and then you can download all the data and then yeah then then the fun analysis starts yeah okay so what's a typical day like when you're in the field so uh, I'll take the, the polar bear as an example. Um, so I mean, the first thing would be you kind of have to look for the weather and see if uh, if the weather is good enough to fly an helicopter. Then if it's a, if it's good, you uh, go on the helicopter uh, and you spend hours pretty much just like scanning the sea ice and looking for bear tracks. Um, and then once you find tracks, you start following them back to the bear. And I guess I kind of mentioned that a little bit, but then you capture them. Then once they're laying down, you go down and you, then you take all the samples. And usually you only have a very brief period. So the, the drugs will only last about, um, an hour before they, they start moving a little bit. So you want to get out before that. So you take all the sample in a fairly short amount of time. Um, so, I mean, we would take, um, claw sample and hair sample, for example, uh, for table isotope, and then you place the collar on the bears, and then you go back into the helicopter and you start looking for more bears. And you usually do that as long as you can. I mean, usually for that, for that field work, the, the limiting factor was the number of hours the helicopter pilots could work. Um, because we were in the Arctic and it was 24-hour daylight, and I can't remember what's the amount of time that an helicopter pilot can work, but I mean it's a long time. Um, but there's a like there's a limit in a day, so that would be when we would go back is when his time was up, and we would go back and then start again the next day. So uh, now that you mentioned about the daylight, how how do uh, these polar bears maintain the um, circadian rhythm? Um, Do they I mean, this fuse that it's like later in the day versus early in the day, like the, the sun still moves around the horizon and at night it's still, um, it's still, you know, the light is very different. It's going to be very orangey. It's going to look like a sunset for about 
five hours or something like that. Okay. Um, I'm not sure exactly how they do in the winter because then it's pretty much dark all the time. And I'm not. I'm not even sure if they. If someone looked at that, what was the cues that they were using to keep their circadian rhythm? Okay, that's interesting. Uh, all mm -hmm. right. So uh, when you're not when when you have free uh, free time during your field work, what do you do? Oh boy, I mean, I'm I'm a bit of a work addict, so I always work. But um, it depends a little bit on which field work we're talking about. But uh, I mean. I would eat chocolate, that's probably the main thing I would do. Um, uh, I guess it depends, I mean, I probably would work on papers or do something a bit more intellectual, um, and, and, but I mean, in most of the place where I was, I was fairly restricted, like as I said, for the Narwhal, we were kind of restricted to a tiny peninsula, we couldn't go anywhere, so I mean, you kind of chat with the people you're working with, and that's pretty much it, and I worked on the Sabo, so you're also very limited in a tiny little space so you kind of don't do much so I, i'd say I'd, re I'd either sleep eat chocolate or work on papers or something like that <laughs> interesting okay so let's talk about your current uh, projects that you're working on um so you can do you uh, also work on um, climate change and and how that affects the movement of um animals um, i mean there's always kind of a goal is to look at how environmental change affects species that's always part of the, the motivation behind my work um i haven't done anything specifically on climate change i have done um i mean my current project is more interested in the impact of fisheries and the impact of um of uh, oil and gas on on gender penguins actually it's not true I'm lying. Um, so for one project that I'm developing, it's still kind of in the works, but uh, with um, the Department of Fisheries and Ocean, where I want to look at the distribution of narwhals and belugas, we're definitely going to look at the impact of climate change and how this is going to affect um, sea ice condition and which in turn how that's going to affect the movement behavior of narwhals and belugas. So what Sorry, that was the... <laughs> <laughs> a change of topic, yes. That's fine, that's fine. So what are the current projects, uh, what other projects are you working on? Well, so the, the main two are the, the, the Gentoo Penguin project, um, which is really to link uh, movement to individual fitness, and then the uh, narwhals and belugas and how to link that to population dynamics. So one of the goals is to link movement behavior to like long-term data on movement behavior to long-term data on population dynamics and then hopefully see how variation in um, the environments that they encountered uh, affect their population. So I think partly one thing we're going to look at is um, how it affects the number of um, uh, youngs that they have. Sorry, I was trying to. I was going to say cubs. Doesn't work for narwhals. <laughs> um, so, but as I said, I just started my new position here. So, I'm, these are all projects that I'm developing as we speak now. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and and you recently had a baby, right? I recently had a baby. Yes, she's um, seven months old. Okay. So, what is challenging about being a mom in size, science, and how has it been so far for you? Um. I mean, the main challenge is that I'm heavily sleep deprived, um, so you have to work with much less sleep than I'm used to. Um, but other than and you have much less time in general, 
Um, but in a way, it focuses you more. I mean, I'm, I I have to go to work at earlier than ever. Normally, I would have really long hours. I would work until at least seven. Now I want to be back home by four because I want to see my my kids. So it it actually means that my day is a bit more divided, and it means that I'm more focused when I'm working. And and yeah, I don't, I thought it's not too hard so far. We'll see in a few years, but it's okay. pretty good. So, so if you had the power, would you change um, anything about um, science or anything about the administration regarding this? Um, so I think the main thing I would change about science is kind of the relationship with publishing that we have. So I think that publishing a result or at least disseminating our knowledge is the, one of the most important um, job of, of scientists. But I think the relationship we have with publishing right now is pretty unhealthy. The whole publishing parish and the really big pressure of, of publishing everything that you write and everything that you do, um, I think is unhealthy. I think it means that a lot of research that is done now is not as good and is also lacking depth. Um, and I, I, if I could change it, I don't think it's possible. At least I think it's going to be a long-term project. But if I could change it, I would change this this pressure for publishing and, and make it so people can... I mean, they still need to publish, but they can publish um, on a less frequent basis and maybe pieces that are much deeper and much more overarching than just the, the smallest unit of publication that you can do. Right. Um, do you also communicate your research to general public through other through science communication? Yeah, so I've talked a little bit through uh, the media. So I've got interviews in in um, in the radio and newspapers, and I mean that's mainly because I work on on charismatic megafauna, so people are interested. Um, so that that helps. Um, but uh, I've also done a lot of outreach. Um, so one. I, I'm really interested in, in education, and so one of the projects that I was involved with is, um, is a project that was based in France, where um, the, the space agency there in France have a, a program where they give students of all ages, we're talking from like three-year-olds to 21-year-olds, data, real data from scientists, and allow the students to use that data in their science project. Um, and so I gave some of the polar bear data that I used for my PhD, and it was really great. I mean, I talked with the students, I went to their, their um, end-of-the-year conference, and it was really great to see the type of work that they did with our data. I mean, some of the older kids would do analysis that were really sophisticated and would answer some of the similar questions that I was asking, so I was really impressed. And it was it's really fun to see to see the excitement uh, about about science and it makes it really easy to talk about you know the importance of your research and things like that great um so my last question if you were to give an advice to yourself your phd self what would that be oh boy <laughs> um not to worry <laughs> that's the thing that things work out in the end I mean, PhD students are usually very stressed, especially in these days where there's like lots of competition and there's, I mean, there's the the the, the pressure to publish. And I mean, a PhD is such a a kind of a, 
it, it feels like such a long project. It's hard to like kind of have an everyday goal and something like that. So I think I would just tell myself to relax and think that things will be okay. <laughs> I think that's kind of, and, and to be good to yourself. Cause I feel like PhD students are often hard on themselves. So yeah. be good to yourself and things will, will be okay. <laughs> Right. <laughs> is that is there anything else you'd like to add? No, I'm I'm all good. That's that thank you for taking the time and, and being interested in my work. I really appreciate. Thank you very much for, for giving us your time. It's really nice. So in spite of having a baby. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. That was Mary Azure Mathai. I'm your host Ravindra and you can follow me on Twitter at Ravindra underscore PN. That is R-A-V-I-N-D-R-A underscore PN. And don't forget to check out journalofanimalecology.wordpress.com for more interesting stories. If you like our podcast, please share and subscribe. Thanks for listening and see you on the next episode.